All right, for the sake of the recording, this is the John 13 through 17 class, uh, January 22nd, 2023, week number three. And uh, we have got a lot of material to go through, um, so we're going to jump right in. I may have to convert into preaching mode maybe halfway through, so we might, you might see me scrapping uh, questions and kind of doing what I call the Jonah principle. You start chucking things overboard when, uh, <laughs> when the ship is sinking. Um, just because I think I have 37 questions on there, so if you did one minute for every question, that would obviously take us near the end of our time. Uh, and we just don't have any flexibility to... Uh, you know, uh, say, oh, we'll just finish it next week because Jamar is going to teach next week and I don't want to cut into his time. And uh, that's just, man, that's the part of the, the, the constraint I feel with this 12-week uh, teaching series is like there's so much to say and so little time. So one of my favorite illustrations is um, anytime you prepare to teach or you're preaching, it's like you're planning a trip to Disney World and you've got 25 children, but only five of them can fit in the car. <laughs> like, who do you take? Who do you take? I love them all so much. So we're going we're gonna, to uh, go on a pretty brisk pace, but let me pray first. Um, Lord, this is uh, such a sweet text, and we are going to learn some profound, marvelous, comforting truths in the text today. And I just pray that the that it would just jump out the page to us, that we would see the text, that we would uh, marvel at the text, that we would uh, bask in it, the truth, and that it would just uh, filter down into our hearts and really just transform the way we think, um, the way we see you, Lord, that it would cause us to see your beauty all the more clearly, and that uh, we would uh, not be able to leave this room without feeling the impact of your word um, as it transforms the way we act, not just the way we think, but even the way we act. And so I just pray that you would bless this time as we study your word um, that you have so graciously provided us. I this in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so uh, this week we're going to do John chapter 13, 31 through 14, 14. And it's kind of see this theme of present and future comfort. So let me just recap a little bit what we have been doing and talking about. So five days before the Passover, Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem on a Sunday, and he presented himself to the nation as the Messiah and the Son of God. And that knowing Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, all these crowds had amassed to, to hail the arrival of the Messiah King. And even though Jesus had clearly foretold his death multiple times, the disciples were still expecting him to establish his kingdom on earth very soon. With heightened anticipation, the disciples found themselves vying for and arguing about who would have greater positions of honor in Jesus' kingdom. So you can imagine them, they're thinking they're riding the coattails of success, they're following Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, they're like, man, this is it, this is what we've been anticipating, Jesus is going to establish His kingdom, and I mean, wow, what, what am I going to get to do in Jesus' kingdom? You can imagine each one of the disciples reflecting on the various acts of service that they had accomplished for Jesus, or maybe the special privileges given to them by Jesus. I mean, like um, John and Peter getting to go up on the Mount Transfiguration, and when Jesus was transfigured, and now the other disciples didn't get that. So you imagine them thinking about those things, and be like, well, surely. And Peter's like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm the spokesman for the group, so surely I'm going to have some prestige. 
But all this helps us understand why the disciples were so confused as Jesus talked of betrayal and leaving during the last night with the disciples. Who on earth would betray the Messiah, especially on the eve of his kingdom reign? All of this sets the table for what would be a night of great sorrow and confusion as Jesus sat down for his last meal with the disciples and began to shepherd them through the terrible suffering about to take place. And so that's our recap. That's where we've been going. That's what we've been talking about lately. And so as we introduce our new material, I want to kind of talk about um, something that the disciples were struggling with that we are all uh, familiar with. And that, that over the past few years, we've seen a rise to a lot of problems in our country that have raised the temperature of conflict and consternation. But you look at a quick glance at the news and you'll see an avalanche of issues from COVID, transgender policy in schools, immigration to inflation and so many more. It's been such a stressful time that the American Psychological Association conducted a survey in the middle of 2022 and found that 76% of people have experienced health impacts due to stress in the prior month, including headaches, fatigue, feeling nervous or anxious, and feeling uh, depressed or sad. It's easy to be worried these days. You just uh, turn on the news and it doesn't take very long to be tempted to worry. And God knows our proclivity, our natural tendency to be anxious, so much so that the scripture gives us commands to not be anxious. So what do people tend to blame anxiety on? See this trend in our country, people are being anxious. What do we tend to blame it on? Things they can't control. Things they can't control. The government. So somebody else. It's not, it's not my fault. It's, it's them. If they weren't being the way they are, I wouldn't be have this issue. Yeah, what else? Fear of the unknown. Fear of the unknown. Yeah, so, t- t- you know, technically speaking, another way to describe anxiety is uh, being a false prophet. Right? You're worried about something that hasn't happened, and you're thinking that this is going to happen. Yeah, anything else? <coughs> If you take medicine for anxiety, what might be the tendency to blame anxiety on then? Well, if you take the medicine, what are you, what are you assuming the problem is? Yeah, it's a chemi- biological, right? So that's another way people can blame anxiety on. It's a biological problem. But what is the central cause, from a biblical worldview, what would be the central cause of anxiety in the life of a believer? Not putting your trust and faith in God? Not reading your Bible enough. Yeah, yeah. being biblically illiterate so that you don't know about what you should be trusting in. Yeah, how do you know what to trust in if, you don't, if you're not spending time in God's Word? Yeah, so at times it seems like our anxiety would be alleviated if Jesus would just tell us His plans, or that we would be at peace if Jesus was at least physically present with us. That's what the disciples thought. But Jesus makes it clear in John 13 through 14 that failure to trust in Him is the cause of anxiety. All the disciples were feeling troubled and worried by news of a betrayer. Peter and John were the only ones who knew the betrayer was Jesus. Remember, Jesus whispered, you know, Peter was gesturing to John, Hey, can you ask Jesus who the betrayer is? And John leaned over, he was already leaning on Jesus and said, Jesus, can you tell us who it is? And Jesus whispered, It's the person I'm going to give this morsel of bread to. So there, gives it to Judas. 
That's why the other disciples didn't know. And then as soon as Jesus, Judas took it, which was, a, was an honor, a loving gesture, a final plea to Judas to repent and to love Jesus, he took the morsel, Satan entered into him, and he immediately left. And it was night. But he, G, uh, G, uh, John and Peter were the only ones who knew this, aside from Jesus. And Judas departed to initiate the final act of Jesus' ministry on earth. It's at this point that Jesus changes the way he talks as he begins his farewell discourse in John 13, 31, where he reveals how to find comfort even when he is no longer present. See, Jesus did not need to be visibly present for the disciples to receive comfort and strength from him. So we'll look at the ways Jesus continues to shepherd his disciples and us, by extension, in, the, in light of answering the question, how do you live life with an invisible Savior? How do you worship an invisible Savior? And how do you deal with the, the, the problems and difficulties we face in this life when you don't have a Savior who's present? So let's start in John chapter 13, 31 to 35. And just as a reminder, in case you haven't been in this class yet, um, you can open your Bibles and follow along, but just to kind of help make things efficient, I include all the passages that we're going to study in the handout. Um, also, it's also from the ESV, so that way we can um, just kind of all see, be looking at the same thing. Okay, so the first thing that uh, we're going to look at is the present comfort of Messianic community. And uh, so John 13, 31 says, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you. Where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Fip, could you grab me a hand out there? Get one for Troy here. Thank you. There you go, Troy. We're on page two. So according to verse 31, what has the departure of Judas set into motion? God's glory and Jesus' glory. Yeah, God's glory and Jesus' glory. And we kind of talked about this in the, our very first lesson, that uh, when Jesus talks about his final hour has come, that that doesn't just refer to the crucifixion. It involves the crucifixion, but it also involves uh, you know, the large scheme of things that Jesus is about to be glorified. His, his claims to deity, his status as God, the Son of God, is about to be verified and presented to the whole world World, not just through the crucifixion, but through the resurrection as well. And then he would ascend to heaven and sit at the right hand of the Father. So that is what this departure of Judas has set into motion when Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Why did Jesus wait until Judas left to talk about this? Another way you could you know, paraphrase, if you did the Tyson paraphrase translation, it's like, well, now Judas is gone. Let me tell you. 
no more to teach Judas. He had no more to teach Judas. Judas probably certainly didn't want to listen to any more of his teaching now that Satan had entered him. What else? Why did Jesus wait until Judas was out of the room? Have you ever had a conversation that you want to have with somebody, but there's other people around? You're kind of like talking around the issue or being really like uh, cloak, cloaked about it, veiled about it. And then when that person leaves, what happens? Yeah, more intimate. So here, Jesus is about to talk about things to the disciples who are believers in him, who are truly saved, that he couldn't say to Judas because it wouldn't be true. You're going to see Jesus talk about tons of things in the following verses that he could not say to Judas because Judas did not love the Lord. We talked about that last week at length, that Judas was not a genuine believer. He was a thief. He was seeking after his own glory. He was wanting to just be a part of a kingdom that he thought Jesus was going to establish and be successful. He wanted money. He was seeking glory for himself and not the Lord's glory. So Jesus waited till he left so that he could, as, as you mentioned, have a more intimate conversation with those who he calls little children, something he wouldn't have called Judas. What does it mean to glorify something? So Jesus here now says, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. Then he goes on to say, If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. I think that's five glorifies in just one verse. So that's probably, you know, whenever you see a lot of repetition in your Bible study, that's usually a good indicator. What, this, is a, what, this is what the Bible is wanting me to focus on. So what does it mean to glorify something? There's some seats up here. I don't know. <laughs> to give weight. Is that what somebody said? Okay. Yeah, the, the, in the Hebrew term, uh, kavod, it has this idea of like heaviness and weightiness to it. But that's kind of still abstract a little bit, so help me parse that out. To give proper honor. To give proper honor. Show how great he is. To show how great he is. Mm-hmm. To display all of his attributes. Mm-hmm. To display all of his attributes. I'm, if you think I'm being weird by parroting your answers, it's so that in case anyone else doesn't hear you, but also for the recording. So, the, like, why does he keep saying everyone's answers again? <laughs> Show your life as God would have it. What's that? Say that again. I'm sorry. Show your life as God would have it. Okay. So live out your life as God would have you to do. So yeah, I think that's a. I think there's a lot of elements to how we can glorify God, but I think you guys have kind of hit on it a little bit. In John 1:14, it's a really interesting. It says that the Word, referring to Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So we kind of see a little bit of, a, of how Jesus glorifies God by simply manifesting God's characteristics, the fullness of truth and grace. That is part of God's glory, and Jesus manifested that by taking on flesh and living perfectly among humans, among, among the world. 
So I think you guys are right. I really like uh, John Piper's short, succinct definition. To glorify is to make clear to others what God is like, so as to seek their praise and admiration of Him, so that they join us in seeking to show how great He is. And I footnoted there, we don't have a lot of time, but there's a bunch of scriptures in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that kind of uh, help us uh, clarify how glorify is something, yes, that you can do privately in your life, right? You can worship God in your private life, and you should, but glorifying God is much more than just your private worship to life, that it's about getting others to see God and to want to praise Him. It's about spreading, as uh, as uh, 2 Corinthians would talk about, spreading the fragrance of the aroma of the knowledge of Christ all over the world. And no matter what that aroma smells like to people, God is glorified when you spread the fragrance of His knowledge everywhere. To some, it's a smell of death, and they hate it. And to those uh, who are being saved, it's a, it's the fragrance of life. It's a sweet aroma. But always, no matter who, how people respond to our spreading God's glory, it's always a pleasing fragrance to Him. So question number six, how is the Son of Man glorified through crucifixion? So we have here in these verses, it says, both the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in Him. So how is Jesus glorified in the crucifixion? Yeah, he fulfilled God's wishes, performed God's will. We kind of see that in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus took the form of a servant. He submitted himself to the Father's will in all things, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Jesus said this in uh, verse, uh, John 17, verse 4, which we'll get to late in the later lessons, but he says, I glorified you, Jesus speaking to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Which is what Stephen was saying. I would also say back on John chapter 1, he manifested God's glory by exhibiting God's character attributes in how he acted, in how he lived his life. He also glorified God. How is God, the Father, glorified in Jesus through the crucifixion? His love and mercy are on display. Mm-hmm. His love and mercy are on display. His what? Justice. Yeah. Justice and mercy meet to kiss. What a, what a, phen- a phenomenal thing that God, who is both, uh, God is both the just and the justifier of the ungodly. Right? That's in Romans. Like, that is just a profound statement. And God is glorified in that. And as you think about John chapter 3, 16, which we all know that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. So Jesus' incarnation, Jesus' sacrifice is the revelation of God's love and plan and purposes to save people. God is glorified in His will being done. It says in John 17, 5, when Jesus is praying, And now, Father, glorify me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. I have manifested Your name. So name is not just literal name, but all of who You are to the people whom You gave me out of the world. So again, Jesus' ministry on earth, His just presence on earth, everything He did manifested God's glory. Uh, Question number eight. In verse 32, Jesus said, 
if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. How does this bolster Jesus' claim to be glorified in the Father? If this starts breaking your brain, that's okay. This is, this is we're getting into the deep, deep end of the pool a little bit. So let me, let me say it a little differently. Jesus here in this verse is equating himself with God. Here, the disciples are looking at a flesh human being saying, I'm going to be glorified, and God is glorified in me. That's a pretty big statement, right? God is glorified by what I'm about to do. And if God is glorified in me, God will also glorify him, Jesus, in himself and glorify him at once. So I am actually going to be glorifying God, and then God is going to glorify me. Whoa. It's like saying, like, I'm serving God, I'm making Him look good, but God's going to make me look good too. I mean, he, none of us should ever talk like that. So when Jesus is saying that, He's equating Himself to God, but how? Let me, just, let me just give the answer. He's bolstering His claim to deity here by saying that it's going to be proven that God, I am glorified and that God is glorified in all this because God's going to glorify me at once. That's the resurrection. You're not going to have to wait very long to see if my claims to deity are true. God is going to do it right away. And you're going to know that what I've said about God all along has been true, and that I, what I've said about myself is true as well. And question number nine, even though Jesus says he's giving a new command, right? So it's, it's kind of interesting. He goes from talking about um, how this is the hour that God's going to be glorified. He says, you're going to then seek me. He uses this really tender and endearing term. He says, my children, this term of great love, but also of understanding that these, these disciples are very um, uh, immature in their thinking, that they're going to be very lost, that they need help. He says, my little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you're going to be seeking me, just as I said to the Jews earlier, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. That was a shock to the system for them to hear that. They already got shocked by the fact that he said, hey, there's a betrayer in my midst. What? Somebody's going to betray you? And now Jesus is all saying, hey guys, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm leaving here pretty quick. And you're, I'm going somewhere that you cannot come. You're going to look for me, but you will not find me. So you see, you can sense the panic starting to creep in, the anxiety for the disciples. Like, what, what is happening? And then it seems like Jesus just turns on a dime and starts a whole other topic. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So even though Jesus says he's giving them a new command... Leviticus 19.18 already says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So what makes Jesus' command in verse 34 new? He gives it, he gives it but technically he gave it in Leviticus 19.18. So what is, what's new about this? That's how other people are going to know that we're his disciples. Okay, but you could say that in Leviticus 19.18. You say, well, you would know that we are followers of Yahweh, that we are Israel by the fact that we love each other. The type of love Jesus is demonstrating is sacrificial. 
so it's he's asking us to love sacrificially. Yeah. So that's the new aspect. In verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's the newness of it. There's another aspect that's new about it too, is, is even though John doesn't talk about it, in the upper room, Jesus instituted the new covenant, and he symbolized it through communion. And under the new covenant, you are no longer under the obligations and penalties of the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant law. And so now you have this introduction of something far better. So the Christians are not lawless. We are not under the law, but we're not lawless. Jesus has given a law that perfectly summarizes everything that the Old Testament law ever stood for. You love one another as I have loved you. It's actually a far better command than all the other commands in the Old Testament. Because when you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you don't need 634 laws of the Old Testament to delineate for you how you ought to love people. You have the Holy Spirit in you, prompting you and guiding you to sacrifice yourself just as Christ has sacrificed for you. To sacrifice yourself in love for other people, whether they are believers or unbelievers. But specifically here, Jesus is giving us a command that in this new covenant community, this messianic community of believers, we're to love one another. And the connection is not always apparent, but here he's saying, guys, I'm leaving. Don't freak out, though, because you guys need to love each other just as I have loved you. How do you live life with an invisible Savior? You live it in the community of other believers who manifest Christ's love to you and you to them. When you love your fellow believers, yes, you're loving them, but you're actually loving Jesus. How do you worship Jesus who's invisible? By how you love other believers. How do you experience and feel the love of an invisible Savior who you cannot hear His voice and you cannot see Him? It's when you experience the love, sacrificial love of other believers. Something as so simple as taking a meal to somebody who is sick is worshiping Jesus and showing the sacrificial love of Christ. Asking for forgiveness, extending forgiveness, doing things that are hard for each other that require sacrifice is how we live with an invisible Savior. Turn the page to page three. I'm going to start ratcheting the tempo up here a little bit. It, this is from D.A. Carson. He says, It's not just the standard is Christ and His love. More, it is a command designed to reflect the relationship of love that exists between the Father and the Son, designed to bring about amongst the members of the nascent Messianic community the kind of unity that characterizes Jesus, as, Jesus and His Father. In other words, Jesus is calling us to love each other the same way the Son and the Father love each other. Isn't that wild? We can't do that on our own, which is why Jamar is going to teach an awesome lesson next week about how we are capable of doing that through the, the help of the Holy Spirit in, in us. You think about the fruit of the Spirit that He produces in the life of converted believers that enables us to supernaturally love each other the way the Father and the Son love each other and the way that the Son loves us. Blow your mind. Blows your mind. Uh, let's see. I'm going to skip question 10. I'm going to go into a little preaching mode now. Just question 11 begins to get at 
uh, some practical ways that we can obey this command. And we could look at tons of scriptures to learn about ways that we can um, love each other as Christ has loved us. But I would say that two of the most important ways that we do that, and this is so important in the context of the church, is that we do it through the asking of forgiveness and the extending of forgiveness. As a community of, of believers, saved, changed, we still struggle with sin. We're still a community of sinful believers that struggle, we're dirty, we're sheep, we sin against each other. And one of the ways we manifest sacrificial love of Christ is readily, easily, graciously extending forgiveness when someone sins against us, just as Christ does to us, and asking for forgiveness when we have stumbled and when we have sinned against others. The presence of Christ in His church, in His people, is not the absence of sin on this side of heaven, but in the presence of Christians who stumble and struggle, but live with humble love toward each other, in the same way Jesus humbly loved us. Again, D.A., uh, actually this is MacArthur, I think. Um, yeah, MacArthur, he says, What causes the sharpest, most bitter disputes in the body of Christ are not doctrinal differences, but the unloving manner in which those differences are handled. Being willing to apologize to those whom we have offended is crucial to preserving the unity of the body of Christ. So important for us to protect and preserve that unity through love and sacrifice. And this is an important and powerful apologetic to the world when we do this. This is what makes us stand out from the world. Again, you go on social media, you go on the news, and you just see people viciously tearing each other apart with their words all the time. You know, we, we often grieve that there's no more civil uh, discourse that happens anymore because people just resort to ad hominem attacks, attacking people's character, um, rather than dealing with the substance of an argument, or people uh, just belittle and, and, and call each other names, and it's just vicious. When we come and we proclaim that we believe in a gospel that transforms everything about who we are, there should be some evidence that shows that. How terrible it is if somebody comes into a church and sees people saying one thing with their mouth and acting completely different. I don't know about you, but if somebody came to my door selling me something and, and they said, this is awesome, you need this in your life, and I said, does it work? And they're like, well, no, and they try to show me and it never worked. I don't want it. <laughs> so if people come into the church and we're saying, we're changed, we're sinners, but we've been transformed, we've been saved, we've been shown so much love, and we're a community of love, but then they see us being bitter towards each other, uh, gossiping about each other, slandering each other, uh, withholding forgiveness from each other, nitpicking at each other over like doctrinal disputes. It's like, yeah, I, I don't want what you're selling. But on the flip side, when we are recognizing, hey, we're, we're a bunch of sinners. If somebody says, the church is just a bunch of hypocrites, see how we are. Join us. You'd just be one more to our number. And they see that in the midst of all of our hypocrisy and our struggles with sin, that we are tender towards one another, forgiving, because we all recognize that we've got giant planks in our eyes of sin, and it makes everyone else's sin look like a speck when we are so consumed with the fact that our sin is against a holy God, and I need to take care of that. 
And I know you're struggling too, but man, my sin's pretty huge. Well, let's do this together. I'm going to help bear your burdens, and we're going to walk this path in following Jesus together. That, that is a transformed community that speaks to the power of the gospel. That adorns the gospel in the language of Titus chapter 2. We should let our behavior adorn the gospel. Our behavior should be like ornaments on a Christmas tree, where the Christmas tree is Christ. And the way we act points people to Jesus in His power, and nothing in, our, in, of, in and of ourselves. Uh, bottom again, D.A. Carson, bottom of page three. The more we recognize the depth of our own sin, the more we recognize the love of the Savior, the more we appreciate the love of the Savior, the higher his standard appears, the higher his standard. Um, Oops, we got a typo there. The, the higher his standard appears, the more we recognize in our selfishness, our innate self-centeredness, the depth of our own sin. With a standard like this, no thoughtful believer can ever say this side of the parousia, which is the coming of Jesus, second coming, I am perfectly keeping the basic stipulation of the covenant, new covenant. So it's a humbling thing, causes us to depend on Jesus all the more. And in our weakness, when we see Jesus' high standard and how we fail to meet it, we need the comfort. We need the present comfort of Jesus' greater love. We love Him, but He loves us more, and His love is perfect. And that's what's taught in the next passage, John 13, 36-38. So Jesus is saying, you guys got to love one another. But Simon Peter, he's glazed over in his eyes. All he heard was Jesus saying, I'm leaving you guys. I'm going away, and you're going to try and seek me, and you're not going to find me. That's all Peter's hearing. The whole thing about, you guys, I need to love one another. Peter's like, yeah, that's great, Jesus, but where are you going? Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. So Peter said to him, Lord, why, why can't I not follow you now? I, I will lay my life down for you. Right? In other words, like, I love you, Jesus. And I'm going to, you know, from the other gospel accounts, like Jesus, or Peter was very vehement about this. He was, he was very like, Jesus, you don't talk like this. Like, I will, I will lay my life down for you. This is, I am not going to fall away from you. Jesus answered, will you lay your life down for me? Truly I say to you, truly, truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. In the sake of time, what's incredible about this passage is that Peter did not recognize in his arrogance and pride his weakness, his sinful weakness. Jesus knew it, and yet Jesus still tenderly, patiently worked with him. He didn't just come off and say harshly, Peter, you're an idiot. Like, I'm God. I've foretold this is going to happen. Like, this is, okay? No, but he just says, he's patient with him. He asks him an ironic question. Like, you know what I'm, you should know what I'm about to do. Are you telling me you're going to lay your life down for me? It's the other way around. I'm going to be laying my life down for you. And then he gives him the prophecy, the foretelling of what's going to happen. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster even crows. Peter's, Peter's focusing on the wrong thing at this point in time. This wasn't the first time he missed the point. There's one time when G, he, Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes Jesus for talking about his coming death. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Something you never want to hear from Jesus. <laughs> and you can only imagine how Peter would have responded, because this was in front of all the rest of the disciples. Jesus has announced a betrayer. They don't know who it is. But Jesus, in front of everyone, saying, Peter, who's the spokesman for the group, the, the informal leader, you're going to deny me. Not betray me, but you're going to deny me. 
everyone's probably looking like, whoa. And I can only imagine the, the disciple, Peter, with a foot-shaped mouth, closes his mouth, severely humbled, to know that he's going to reject Jesus. You don't see Peter talk the rest of the time through John 13 through 17, which I think testifies to the fact that he was very humbled in this moment. And just the wheels are turning in his head about what's going to happen. He's anxious, but Jesus is still comforting him because he always says, right before he says, you're going to deny me, he says, you can't follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Jesus, knowing that he's going to stumble, says, don't, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. As we know from the end of John chapter 20, Jesus restores Peter lovingly. Peter comes to him, still pursuing Jesus, and he forgives him and restores him to that leadership position. Let's turn the page to page 5. Jesus then continues on to the future comfort of heaven. In John chapter 14, 1 through 7, Jesus, he's reading the temperature of the room. He knows what's going on. He knows how this is hitting everybody. So he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, okay, remember, Peter's not talking anymore. Usually he's the one who asks the questions. But as the wheels are going and spinning inside of Peter's head, Thomas speaks up. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we, how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You can only imagine the medley of emotions going through all the disciples right now after everything that's happened. They had the foot washing scene, which brought great shame on them that they didn't step up to serve. And now here their Lord and Savior, their Messiah, is washing their dirty, stinky, nasty feet. So they're ashamed. They got a betrayer in their midst. So they're confused and shocked, worried about who it is to the point where they're saying, is it me? Is it me? It's going to be me? You got Peter over there who's now humbled and he's got his mouth shut because he's like, what, what is going to happen? How am I going to deny Jesus? I would never do that. You're going to see the anxiety then too. Jesus saying, I'm leaving you. I'm going away. You won't be able to find me. I thought you were going to be the king. I thought you were going to set up the kingdom right now. What? You just can see all this flurry of stuff going on. And Jesus responds to that. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be discouraged. Do not be anxious. Then he goes on to give them a comfort. He gives them a command and then a comfort. Don't be troubled. Instead, what should you do? Believe in God. Believe also in me. Again, what a profound statement of deity 
Don't only when you trust in God, you sh- if you trust in God, you should also be trusting in me because we are one. And it's not that they weren't believing in God. Obviously they had. They were they were Old Testament saints and now they were continuing to believe in the progress of revelation as Jesus revealed truth to them. So they were already believing, but oftentimes you know the refrain when Jesus would chastise them a little bit and say, Oh, you, ye of little faith. Little faith doesn't mean they had no faith. It just meant when the rubber met the road, when things got hard, their faith wasn't persevering through the trouble. When they were in the boat with Jesus, not just once, but twice, and the storm came, even the second time they freaked out, even though they knew Jesus could silence the storm. What were they thinking? That Jesus was just going to let them all die in the boat? Or that Jesus himself was going to let the storm kill them? You of little faith, once the storm hits, once the trials of life come, you give up believing, you, 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 you worry, you doubt. Uh, Christ affirmed his deity here by placing himself on par with the Father as an appropriate o- of object of faith. In calling them to hope in God, Jesus was calling his disciples to put their hope in him. The Lord was not calling the disciples to believe savingly in him. They had already done so. The present tense form of this word believe in the Greek refers instead to an ongoing trust in him. So that, like I said, that persevering trust. Though they genuinely believed in Jesus, the disciples' faith was already beginning to waver. Soon, when he, was, when he was taken from them and they faced the traumatic events of his betrayal, arrest, trial, and crucifixion, it would reach its lowest ebb. Jesus knew that what was about to happen was going to rock the faith of the disciples, tempt them to doubt who he said he really was, to give up, like, we spent three years with you, following you, sacrificing with you, doing ministry with you, and you said you're God, and you're, now you're dead. Was it even real? Have I been wasting my life? You imagine these questions and temptations facing the, the, the disciples, but Jesus is comforting them. Jesus is protecting them. He's the great shepherd, the shepherd of Psalm 23, the shepherd king. He's, this, is, this is what's going to happen, but don't lose heart. Don't be troubled. Believe in me. Keep going. Keep trusting in me. When, when, the, when the disciples hear Jesus say, in my father's house, they've heard him use that expression before. One of the times was, was when he was flipping tables and whipping people. He says, this is my father's house. This is, not a, this is a place of prayer and worship. So when they hear him say, this is my father's house, again, remember, they're not always capturing the true meaning of Jesus' statements. So I think in this moment, they're thinking Jesus is talking about the temple. When he says, I'm going to my father's house, I'm going to prepare a place for you there. There again, still in that mindset, Jesus is going to be king. He's going to go to the temple. He's going to establish the kingdom. It's coming up. And he says, I'm going away. You can't follow me. You don't know that, you know, and they're like, well, which way are you going? Literally, they're kind of saying like, which street are you going to go down? Like there's a bunch of different streets that go to to the Temple Mount. Which way are you going? We don't know which street you're going to go on. Which way are you going to enter into the temple? Because I know you're trying to avoid the Pharisees and stuff. I mean, we've been having this secretive location for our Passover meal because we know they hate you. So like, which entrance are you going to go into the temple? And how we know the way to get there? And it's going over their heads. But Jesus is speaking about heaven in this instance. And the context makes that clear here, too. 
And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know which way you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says, I, I, I am the way. I am the way to my Father's house, to heaven. I am the way. I am the truth. You don't have to worry. I haven't lied. I am the Son of God. I am the life. Though you die, yet shall you live if you believe in me. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's interesting then he says there at the verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. It's interesting there that he see, it almost seems a, like a, a, you know, he's sitting there encouraging them and continue to believe. But at the same time he says, If you had known me, Jesus had told them several times before that he and the Father were one. That he had equated himself with God to the point that the Jews picked up stones to kill Jesus. That's all the way back in John chapter 5. So the, the disciples really don't have too much of an excuse. He says, if you would have known and understood what I was saying to you, you would have also known that you already know the Father. And then from now on, Jesus is saying, after the resurrection is going to be clear to you. From now on, you will have known that you have seen the Father. What a comforting truth that Jesus brings to our remembrance here about heaven. First uh, Peter talks about this, how we are aliens and sojourners in this life, that this is not really our home. And if you look around our, our you know, culture and stuff, everyone longs for a home. I mean, I know we, we were pretty upset about the immigration policies of, our, of uh, our country, right? A country without borders is not a country at all, and there's some issues that need to be fixed there. But there's also a reality. There's a lot of people who are hurting and looking for a home, who are fleeing the homes they have because they're terrible, unsafe, awful places, and they're coming to a country that is a place of opportunity and safety. And it's not just immigrants, but we all long for a home. Think about children who are orphaned, need adoption, foster children, and even just us. People are homeless. All, everyone is looking for a home. <clears throat> and that sensation is there because eternity is written on our hearts. Everyone's just looking for home in the wrong place usually. And so Jesus here is saying, don't, don't worry. There's a home that you have that I'm going away to prepare for you. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged about what's going to happen. It's all under control. I like this quote from J.C. Ryle at the bottom of page 5. Home, as we all know, is the place where we are generally loved for our own sakes and not for our gifts or possessions. The place where we are loved to the end, never forgotten and always welcome. This is the one idea of heaven. Believers are in a strange land and at school in this life. In the life to come, they will be at home. They will be at home. It's comforting, I think, to see Thomas, the one we know who struggled with doubt about Jesus, asking this question, where are you going, Jesus? I want to know. I want to be with you. I want to follow you. And Jesus says to him in verse 4, you know the way where I'm going. So even though it wasn't clicking, the sincerity of their childlike faith, he can say, you already know where I'm going. You already know. I've been telling you. Even though it's, it's a little bit muddy in your mind, you know, I am the way. I am the truth. That's why they know the way already. I am the way. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. Even in the midst of Thomas's doubt, struggling, wrestling with understanding, Jesus condescends to him, helps him. It's so encouraging. When we struggle to understand things in Scripture, when we struggle to apply truth in our lives, to repent of sin, like everyone, when we struggle with sin, we don't usually repent it perfectly overnight. Like repentance is, is a long pattern of developing holy, uh, saying, uh, holy choices and saying yes to the right things and no to the wrong things over time, especially when we've been living in a sin pattern for a while. It takes time to repent of that. As we struggle with those things or as we struggle to trust Jesus when we're anxious about things, Jesus is saying, you know the truth. Keep persevering. I am the way. I'm preparing a place for you. He doesn't just cast them aside in the midst of their weakness. Jesus' love is stronger than ours. Jesus comforted the believers in their faith, though it was struggling to understand everything. The disciples had already pursued, were pursuing the way to God in faith and had been with God. They just hadn't recognized it. Jesus is the way to be with the Father. Jesus is the truth. He is not false. In Jesus is the life. He is the resurrection and the life, so that even if a believer dies, he still lives. Though their faith was weak, it was still put in the right person. D.A. Carson once noted in a sermon that it's not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the object of your faith. What an encouraging thought. In the midst of our inadequacies in the midst of our struggles. It's not the strength of our faith that saves us, but the object, Jesus Christ. He is the way. Not the strength of your faith is the way. The object of your faith, He Himself, is what saves us. At the bottom of page 6, Jesus essentially in verse 7 says, If you had been paying attention, you would have known about how I and the Father are one. But from now on, you will understand. The disciples, they struggled to pay attention because they didn't have a full understanding of the gospel message yet. They didn't understand the need for the Messiah to be a suffering servant before He became a reigning King. The incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh, made it hard for them to understand that Jesus was God. No one had ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. And then here's this guy flesh standing right next to you just as I am to you saying, hey, I am God, I am God are one. It's just, there's no category for putting that in your mind. So we, we sometimes we get, we get we're hard on the disciples, those knuckleheads, they should have known. We're looking at after the fact with all the information. They didn't have all the information. But after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples would come to finally understand Jesus' mission and the connection that to look for God is to find Jesus, and vice versa, to see Jesus is to see God. That Jesus is what can be seen of what cannot be seen. Another way to say that, He is the visible manifestation of an invisible God. That should keep you awake at night. That Jesus is the visible manifestation of an invisible God. That's John 1, 14 and 18. It's easy to look down on the disciples as if they weren't smart enough, but we have to keep in mind that they were living by faith and sight. Isn't that interesting? They got to live by faith and sight. They had the Son of God right there in front of them, teaching them and showing them His power, but eventually they were going to be whiplashed back into living by faith alone. 
We live by faith now and in the hope of living by sight in heaven. So you can understand the confusion that they had where Jesus is sitting there. They've been following him, hearing him talk and just letting him lead. And now he's like, guys, I'm leaving. You guys are on your, you guys are on your own in a sense, but don't worry. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. You're going to be able to live life with an invisible Savior. And here's how. Turn the page. Page 7. In the, in the last section here we have Jesus wants them to find comfort in the present in his identity. In his identity. In verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. This, again, is another profound, and there's going to be many more, statement about the, the deity of Jesus and the union, the close intimacy he has with the Father. Philip's interesting. It seems, again, like this is just a branch off into another topic where uh, Thomas has been asking, like, where are you going? Like, we really want to know, and can you help us out? I, I, I'm trying to understand. He's missing the point about heaven. And Jesus is trying to comfort them and say, you know the way. I am the way. And so Philip's here, he's clinging to this idea. Well, Jesus is going, and oh, we need something to help carry our faith through. Uh, oh, man, you know what? Moses asked God to show himself, and he got to see some of God's glory. I think that's what's going on in Philip's mind. He's like, can you show us the Father? It would be enough to sustain our faith through this difficult time of your departure. Jesus profoundly says, in a sad way, though, at the same time, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Wow. What's tragic about Philip's statement is that he had heard Jesus say this over and over again, which I think is why I can appropriately read a little bit of sadness into Jesus' statement. But Jesus wants him to grasp this concept. So he says, he says it plainly, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Then in verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? That's a very precise and profound way of speaking of the Trinity. Jesus does not say, I am the Father and the Father is me. That's not right. That's not biblical. He says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I'm just going to tell you, I don't know how to make that understandable for you, but it's important to know that distinction. Jesus is not God the Father. Jesus is God, but He is not the Father. The Father is not Jesus. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. You have three distinct persons in one being. James White has a great book on this subject and a simple, helpful definition of the Trinity in the middle of page 7. Within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus wants us to cling to this identity that I am God. 
I am not just a man. I am not just fleshly. I'm not just a prophet. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am the Creator, and I have the power to defeat sin and death. So when you see me die on the cross, do not be dismayed. Do not falter in your faith. I'm still God, and I've got this under control. And if God has everything under control when the worst sin and the darkest evil is ever being perpetrated in the history of the world or through the crucifixion of the Son, then we can take it to the bank that He is still God when we go through difficulties in our life, no matter what they are, no matter how hard they are. Jesus is still God and has everything under control. How do we understand the Trinity? We can explain it and, and to a degree, but there's still a deep mystery to it. And at some point, we just hit a wall as we think about it, and we just have to worship when we hit that wall. We can't wrap our minds around it because God is holy. Primarily holy, the word holy means set apart. We would say another word is transcendent. God is beyond our comprehension and understanding. If we could understand Him fully, He would not be God. Holiness applies to his morality as well. Usually when we think holiness, we think like, oh, perfectly sinless and all that. That's true. But it's because he is transcendent. And part of his transcendence is the fact that he is one God, one being, three persons. Jesus is God. The disciples were staring at a flesh and blood man saying and claiming to be the eternal God who created them. We have to give a little bit of credit to the disciples that this was this was just uh, something incredibly hard to understand, and, and and we still can't fully understand it. The final thing Jesus points to, in bringing comfort to the disciples in the midst of their anxiety, is the p- comfort of his power. Jesus had been doing incredible miracles for three years. They had seen him change water into wine. They'd seen him heal people of diseases that. You just, that are unexplainable. People who couldn't walk forever, people who were blind and just boom, raising a little girl from the dead, raising Lazarus from the dead, creating food ex nihilo out of nothing, feeding 5,000 people on one occasion, 4,000 on another, just doing all these things that only God can do. No magic tricks, pure power, supernatural power. And now Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. I've been doing ministry with you guys and leading that ministry, and you've been following, but I'm going now. And the dismay of the disciples had to have been like, well, how are we going to do ministry? How are we going to keep telling people about the kingdom of God without you going around and showing off your supernatural powers? Jesus says, my power essentially is going to be with you. So to the degree that you're going to do even greater works than me, Let's look. For, for John 14, 12 14. Truly, truly, or amen, amen, uh, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So here Jesus is continuing on the thread of, I'm leaving. Because I am going to the Father, is what he says in verse 12. Because I'm going to the Father, 
Whoever believes in me, that faith will naturally produce works. What kind of works? The same works that Jesus has done, and even more, greater works than I do. What does that mean? What on earth? That's a verse that's quite abused, especially in charismatic circles. Are we going to be able to do the same healings that Jesus has done? Are we going to be able to create food out of nothing? I don't see that actively happening in the church. So I have to say that that is not true, but not just because of my anecdotal experience, but because the text is not saying that either. Yes, Jesus did miracles. Yes, some of the, the apostles got to do miracles too, none of which were of the caliber of what Jesus did, but nonetheless, they did do some miracles. But greater works than what Jesus has done? I think we have to ask the question, what was the primary work that Jesus was doing? You could say the will of the Father. What was the will of the Father? To make known His glory, to make known the way of salvation to sinners, to save the sick and the unrighteous, to help them come to have a saving faith that would last into eternity. That's the work that Jesus was ultimately doing. That's the work that all the miracles and stuff pointed to. Miracles are cool. You see them, but you walk away and you forget about them, or they don't actually change you. There was tons of people who saw Jesus' miracles and weren't saved on account of it. The greater works is nothing about doing something more powerful than Jesus. Nobody can ever do something as powerful as Jesus' atoning work on the cross. So Jesus isn't saying we're going to do more powerful things than Him. But we are going to continue the ministry of seeing people saved from eternity in hell and see their souls transformed from deadness to life, from blindness to sight, and that impact will have an eternal impact. By the time Jesus ascended into heaven, if you remember in 1 Corinthians 15, there were about 500 disciples that were there to see that. So of all Jesus' ministry, about 500 disciples there on earth at the time He ascended to heaven. How many disciples were converted on the first sermon Peter preached in Acts chapter 2? 3,000 greater works than mine you are going to do. That is what Jesus is speaking to. And Jesus' power is at work in that. Obviously, that's not our own work. Jesus is working in us and through us to save people's souls. But unless we're out there sharing the gospel, it won't happen. And then Jesus finally says, finally, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. This is not just a phrase you tack onto the end of your prayers to sanctify your prayers and make sure you seal the envelope before it goes to God. In Jesus' name, amen. It means if you pray anything in accordance with the will of God, and it says that in the verse, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So if you ask anything in Jesus' name that accords with glorifying the Father, I will do it. That's an amazing and profound promise, that when your heart is aligned with the motives and the will of God, and you pray for God to do something, He promises to do it. That is the power of Christ. This is not a man-centered passage as some abuse it and take it. This is a God-centered passage. God is saying, I'm going to continue to do the supernatural, eternal work of converting souls through you, even though I'm physically gone. And whatever you need as you do that work, whatever you need in doing the work of glorifying me, you just ask for it, and I and my power will do it for you. For the glory of God. Do not be concerned. Do not be anxious. Do not be scared. Do not let your hearts and souls be troubled. 
even though I'm gone, there is great comfort. I'm out of time. So, <laughs> we made it. <laughs> we made it. There's so much more in there. I wish we had more time. We could camp out in these passages for weeks. But that's, that is where we'll have to leave it. So thanks, guys, for tuning in for a partial discussion, partial sermon. And uh, we'll pick up next week as Jamar teaches us on the, uh, the advocate, the paraclete, the helper, the Holy Spirit, the gift that Jesus gives us as he is gone. All right, thanks.